This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. I read an article recently about how the Harry Potter books uh, were written in a genre that typically appeals to a male audience, and, and yet they surprisingly appeal to this largely female audience. And so this article was kind of trying to come up with some reasons for why that might be. And, and this particular article was, was putting forward that the reason is because the story, Harry Potter's story, really begins with Harry Potter's mother, Lily. And, and really it's set in this, the, the true emotional center of the whole story is, is Lily Potter and her, and her love for her son. Now, if there's any Potter heads in here that are getting angry at me or like, no, that's not true, that chapter and verse, right? It's okay, I'm just telling you what the article said, uh, and, and so don't, don't hate me for it. But, but think about this. Harry shows up as a baby delivered from death by the titanic love of his mother. And the whole story could be actually seen as being told from the narrator, the narrator which may be his mother, told with pity and compassion and, and joy. And so this whole story is one of, uh, that's told through the joyful gaze of Harry's mother. And as we turn to Jesus' story, we see that it begins similarly. It begins with Jesus' mother, and it's, it begins uh, with the gaze of a loving mother on her son. And so the story starts actually with an angel, Gabriel, coming to this teenage woman named Mary and saying to her that she is the favored one, because she's going to conceive and bear a son. Now, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the, that the potential scandal of this is lost on us. Uh, Philip Yancey, an author, says this, In a closely knit Jewish community in the first century, the news the angel brought could not have been entirely welcome. The law regarded a betrothed woman who became pregnant as an adulteress, subject to death by stoning. And so this could have been deadly, This could have been, at the very least, social suicide for Mary. That she was going to be pregnant. Imagine the talk and the gossip of the town as her baby bump begins to show. Mary, who's remained faithful to Joseph through through their engagement, through her betrothal to him, has to convince him and everybody else that that's really true. As she has to explain why she's pregnant. And so Mary could have been angry with God for his untimeliness. This is not fair, could have been her reply. But, but interestingly, the only thing she asks is kind of about the mechanics of it. She's like, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel responds, nothing will be impossible with God. 
And in, in these next words, how Mary follows up, her reply are so powerful. These next words, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And, and really, Mary here is a paradigm of Christian faithfulness. And, and we're reminded, actually, of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's looking down his impending death on the cross. And as he's in the garden, he prays and he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' not as I will, but as you will sounds a lot like Mary's let it be to me according to your word, doesn't it? Where do you think he learned that kind of faithfulness from? The book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience. Where did he learn that from? Probably from the same place that most of your children will learn it from, from his faithful mother. And so as as Mary is modeling to us what it means to be a faithful believer in God, I want you to hear that this text is not actually about Mary. And I don't think Mary would want me to make it about Mary. This text is is really about Mary's joy. See, Mary is a remarkable woman because she has trust in a remarkable God. And so I want to look at Mary's joy in in three ways. Uh, Mary has joy in God who is the joy of every longing heart, the lover of the lowly, and the rememberer of mercy. So those are the three points. The joy of every longing heart, the lover of the lowly, and the rememberer of mercy. Of mercy. If you have a Bible or your worship guide, go ahead and get that out because you're going to need it as we look together at this text. Look at verse 46 with me. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, historically, this song has been called the Magnificat because the Latin translation of my soul magnifies the Lord is is where we get that word Magnificat from. But what does it mean to magnify the Lord? Uh, John Piper has a classic illustration of this where he, he talks about how both microscopes and telescopes magnify things. Right? They both magnify the objects that you point them at, but they do it in two, two very different ways. Because what a microscope does is a microscope makes things that are are small, very, very small, it makes them look bigger. Whereas a telescope takes things that seem to appear small and shows them for what they really are, which is huge and gigantic. And so the question is then, do we magnify the Lord like a microscope or like a telescope? And the answer has to be we magnify him like a telescope because God is great. He is full of grandeur. And yet sometimes it doesn't seem that way. But that's because of our failure to perceive him that we see him as small and insignificant. And so if you look at the stars and they appear tiny to your naked eye, is that the star's fault? Of course not. It's the inability of our vision to see, to perceive rightly. And and so what we need is we need the eyes of our hearts to be healed so that we might see God rightly. And this is why the the 5th century North African bishop, uh, Augustine of Hippo, says this. He says, our entire task in this life, dear brothers and sisters, consists in healing the eyes of the heart so they may be able to see God. Mary sees God clearly, so she wants to speak of God sincerely. 
But, but how do we magnify the Lord? What does it actually look like to enlarge God before our squinting eyes? How do we reveal in our lives God's greatness as he really is? Well, it's the very next line there. It says, by rejoicing in God, my Savior. Mary's entire song is a, is a clinic in how to rejoice in God, my Savior. And, and what Mary does is she humbly contemplates the mercy and the majesty of her God, and then she tells us all about it. And, and really, Mary's brimming with joy because she looks at the God who is, and she sees a God who is the lover of the lowly. And so as we look at the lover of the lowly, we turn to verse 48. Now, verse 48 begins with the word for, because Mary has just told us now why she's rejoicing, and she's going to kind of ground it. She's going to ground her praise in, in this next verse. It says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So Mary rejoices in God, her Savior, first because he's looked at her. You notice that? He has looked. Mary's rejoicing because she's seen by her God. And this word look is often used for a loving, attentive care. Now, if you were to read through the Gospels uh, and, and pay close attention, you would notice that Jesus often notices the unnoticeable. Jesus can't help himself. And, and there's this one scene in, in, in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house. And, and this woman comes in and, and she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And, and, and Jesus' first real rebuke to Simon the Pharisee is this. Do you see this woman? Do you even see her? As, or is she so beneath you that you're oblivious to her existence? That's his first rebuke. Because Jesus saw her. Jesus notices the unnoticeable. All throughout the Gospels, we see it over and over again. And, and really, the, the co most common emotion we see in Jesus' life is compassion. But what's amazing is that the word compassion is also often paired with the word he saw and he had compassion. And so there's something about our God who, who notices, who sees, who looks upon, and it moves him to compassion. And Mary rejoices in this. And, and I love it because Mary is probably one of the only people that could offer us this song. Because only if you realize that I am a, I'm in a lowly estate, as she puts it, will you be able to be overwhelmed by the, by the incomparable compassion of God. And so this is what verse 50 means when it says that, that his mercy is for those who fear him. His mercy is for those who embrace their place in relation to God, which always puts us in a posture of humble reverence if we see rightly. And so his mercy is for those who fear him. And, and this is amazing that when God sees our lowliness, when he sees our humility, he's not pushed back by it. He's actually drawn near to it. He draws near to the lowliness. This is why in verse 49 she says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Because God actually sees Mary and he's not put off by her lowliness. In fact, he draws near to her. 
But in this text, we see what God is repulsed by. Because verses 51 through 53 are a master class in how God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so look at verse 51 with me. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now what does this mean that he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts? I mean, if we're honest, don't you know that most of your pride occurs in the thoughts of your heart? Isn't it true that most of our arrogance is in the privacy of our own heart where nobody else really sees it? A few years ago, uh, I, I was reflecting and I, I sort of realized that there was something that I did. When, when I walked into a room, especially if I didn't know the people, if I was a little bit uncomfortable, I'd walk into a room and, and I'd immediately, maybe subconsciously, maybe a little consciously, I'd begin to evaluate everybody in the room. I'd immediately begin wondering, how am I superior or inferior to all of these people? And usually I used a sliding scale that was always a little weighted in my favor. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit more intellectual than that person. Um, yeah, handsomer, definitely humbler than him. And right as I'm doing this, and, and I'm just being honest, as I realized this, it broke my heart. It broke my heart because you can hear the pride in it. And hear me, God despises that. Now, if you think that's too strong, listen to the language of Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He will not go unpunished. And so don't you see that much of our comparison, much of the ways that we subtly exalt ourselves and diminish others, it happens in the thoughts of our hearts. But not all of it. Some of it is public enough Right? I, I have the privilege of sitting with couples and, and walking through uh, counseling with them. And, and first of all, I'm always encouraged when a couple comes to see me for counseling because it takes humility to recognize when your spouse says, hey, I think we might need help to say, yeah, I think you're right. It takes humility to do that. So anybody that comes in, I'm, I'm really grateful and humbled by the fact that they'd come in. But something happens sometimes when, when I sit with a couple and within the first hour I realize that nobody's going to take responsibility for the problems in this marriage. And, and what happens is there's kind of this like subtle like blame shifting and maybe there's some like, you know, I, I did this, but nobody's perfect. But really it's all his fault. Truthfully, it's all her fault. And, and it grieves me. It grieves me when I see that because I have hope only for the humble. And until somebody's willing to humble themselves, I realize we've got a long road ahead of us. But it's not just in marriage. Uh, uh, parents who never ask for their child's forgiveness. Friends who are too fragile and, and easily hurt by being snubbed by everything that other people say. People who are constantly playing the victim full of self-pity. On and on we could go to see that this is what it looks like to have pride in the thoughts of our hearts. But I want you to hear that maybe it's God's kindness when he enters in and he scatters the thoughts of your hearts. Maybe it's the, the kindness of God. Maybe he's doing it right now. I pray he is. Because what Martin Luther said is he said, in mercy, God breaks what is whole and makes whole what is broken. 
And so it might be the mercy of God that he would not leave you to the echo chamber of your own arrogant heart, but that he'd come in there and he'd scatter those thoughts. Because again, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So let's continue on to verse 52. It says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The mighty, the powerful, the popular, those who live as though might makes right, those who use their power to cover up their evil, those who use their authority to bend the rules in their favor, those who use their influence to advantage themselves at the disadvantage of others, all of those will be brought down. I don't know how, and I don't know when, but it will happen. You can be sure of that. Because God, throughout the entire scriptures, God's signature move, if you will, is that he humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble. This is what he does. Henry Nouwen, who is one of the great spiritual writers of the 20th century, uh, he taught at Harvard and Yale, and he was becoming a big deal. And that concerned him, because he noticed how much his heart loved it. And so what he did was he actually left teaching in the Ivy League schools. He left the grand stage where he had audiences by the thousands. And, and he moved to a community in Toronto where he spent the rest of his life ministering among those with mental disabilities people who don't even know his name, people who couldn't care less if he's written a book, people who do not think he's a big deal. And he gave his life to washing and caring and loving a severely disabled man named Adam. And he had a word for this. He had a, he had a phrase for what this was that he was doing. He said that in a society where everybody believes the only way you can go is up, only upward mobility counts. Henry Nouwen called this downward mobility. Because he knew that God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. And we go on to verse 53. It says, He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Sometimes I squirm a little bit when I hear how hard the Bible is on the rich. Because we're honest, it's, it's really how hard the Bible is on us. The wealthy and the privileged of this world. But, but I want you to hear me say, I've known rich people that are deeply humble. And I've known proud people that are profound, I'm sorry, poor people that are profoundly proud. My wife and I went into a 7-Eleven and as we were walking in, we, we noticed a guy who was panhandling. And, and as we walked in, we were like, what can we do? So we, we decided to get a few different things, some drink, a drink and a sandwich and, and whatnot, just to do whatever we could to help this guy. And we walk out and we give it to him and he immediately like looks at the sandwich and starts screaming at us because we got him turkey instead of ham or ham instead of turkey. And so hear me, it's, it's not your economic status that really matters in this moment. But, but there's something to this. When, when you have the Midas touch, when everything in your hands turns to gold, if you are healthy and wealthy and successful, it is easier for you to put your security to be settled and secure in your stuff rather than in God. That's, I think, what the text is talking about here. Because if your stomach is full, why would you cry out, I'm hungry, God, fill me? But it doesn't have to be this way. Psalm 86, verse 1, King David prays this. He says, 
Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, when David prayed this, he was the monarch of an ancient Near Eastern dynasty. (laughs) Anybody else in here? Didn't think so. So he had more wealth and power and success than any of us will probably ever attain. And he gets on his knees before God and he says, answer me, I'm poor and I'm needy. Economically, that is just not true for him. He's spiritually, he's economically bankrolled, but he realizes he's spiritually bankrupt. As he stands before the face of God, he cannot help but have to say, I'm poor and I'm needy. He admits his destitution. He admits his need because what does he have that was not given to him? So it's not wrong to be rich, but it's wrong when our riches blind us to our utter poverty and neediness before God. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says this, As for the rich in this present age, tell them to give away all they have. No, 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 it doesn't say that. This is what it says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In our text this morning, the rich are sent away empty because they don't ask for anything because they don't see that they need anything. The Apostle James says, you do not have because you do not ask. So we focus quite a bit on how God opposes the proud, but uh, how he opposes the proud and the powerful and the prosperous, those who think they don't need God. But but I do want to transition and see how God deals with the humble and the hungry. Because remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace upon grace upon grace to the humble. This is why Augustine says uh, that humility is central to the Christian life. He wrote a letter to a student. He says, if you should ask me what are the ways of God, I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is humility. Not that there are no other precepts to give, but if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are meaningless. Because God mends the broken. He exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things. And this is good news because not all of us can move up in this world. But we can all move down. There's plenty of space at the bottom. And grace runs downhill. And and so what this is calling us to is, is for people like you and me to go low because we know that we'll find God there. Why else would we do it? One of my, potentially one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 57, 15. And it says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Okay, so now God's going to speak. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. There's no one more high and exalted 
than God, and yet he's not too high to stoop low. And, and really, what is it in our God that makes him drawn to the lowly? Right, because we are tempted to be drawn to the rich and the famous, the, the popular and the prosperous, but God keeps company with the poor, the weak, the needy, and the broken sinners. What kind of God is this that he's drawn to the lowly? What kind of God is this that his heart breaks on behalf of the broken? Well, I think what it is is God is drawn to the lowly because he himself is both high and humble. He's both majestic and meek. And God's not calling you and I to anything that he is not himself here. So one of my favorite ways of, uh, or persons that talks about this is, is a quote by Tim Keller where he talks about this paradox that we find in Jesus between his, his greatness and his meekness. And this is what he says. Despite his high claims, he's never pompous. You never see him standing on his own dignity. He's tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without pharisaism, passion without prejudice. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he's always surprising you and taking your breath away because he's so incomparably better than you could ever imagine for yourself. This is our God. This is, this is the God of Mary's joy. This is the God of, of Mary's womb. And, and so imagine what it would look like to be a church full of people magnifying the mercy of God towards the undeserving. Because if Orlando doesn't see in us that God is, gives grace to the humble, where else are they going to see that? And so I want to ask you, does your heart rejoice in God your Savior, the lover of the lowly? He's not only the lover of the lowly. Finally, as we close, he's also the rememberer of mercy. Look at verse 54 with me. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now Mary sings this line because she knows that she's caught up in the the big picture of God speaking and acting in the world. And, and she knows that God has been, that this great God has been promising his presence to his people for millennia. And that now he's arrived. Now this great God has shown up in the meekness of her womb. And, and so Mary is rejoicing in this because when God remembers his mercy, he acts on his own word and he keeps his promise. What promise? Well, she signals us to look at Abraham. And so when we read in Genesis 12, God has made this promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. And so Abraham was really the beginning of God's rescue plan of humanity since the rebellion of Adam and Eve. So in the garden, Adam and Eve rebel. And and really we see the first glimpse of human pride. As Eve sees the forbidden fruit as a means of rising above her station into God's throne. But now God remembers his mercy. His mercy, he's fulfilling this promise to rescue humanity from our haughtiness. God has remembered his mercy to Abraham 
through his offspring, namely Jesus. So I, I just want to do something a little bit different, and that is I've never seen a better depiction of this than a painting. A painting by a woman named Sister Grace Remington of Mary and Eve. I want you to notice a few things. Notice how Eve is sad while Mary smiles. Notice how Eve is naked while Mary is clothed. Notice how Eve's hand is on the fruit of her fall, the source of her sin, while Mary's hand is on the fruit of her womb, the source of her salvation. Eve's other hand reaches out in hope, while Mary's other hand reaches out to comfort. Eve's foot is tangled by the serpent, while Mary's foot crushes the head of the serpent. All of this is to illustrate the promise of God in Genesis 3.15, where he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so Mary's song of joy erupts because God remembers his mercy. Mary's song of joy flows from her trust in God's promises. Mary's song of joy is born out of God's love for the lowly. And so in closing, I want to read to you the words of a poem by Lucy Shaw. This poem's called Mary's Song, and it's told from the perspective of Mary. I'd encourage you to look it up because the whole poem's, it's amazing. But, but these are the last lines. It says, Brought to this birth for me to be newborn, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Do you see Jesus torn so you might be reborn? Do you see Jesus' life ended so your life could be mended? Do you see Jesus' humility to heal your haughty heart? Do you see Jesus as the lover of the lowly? Because here is the hope of Advent. Because of the meekness of Jesus, the mercy of God is available to the undeserving. This is why we sing songs of joy. This is why we sing songs of the Messiah. If you would pray with me. Holy Father, we come to you recognizing that you are a God who remembers your mercy. You're a God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble us, God. Bring us low before you that we might experience the love of the lover of the lowly. Holy Spirit, I pray that you draw our hearts to Jesus, that we might see him in his humbleness and in his glory. Jesus, we thank you for being born of a woman and dying on a cross and rising again so you might be our hope and our joy. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.